Hi, welcome to the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ibi Dugwe and my co-host with me today is Sylvie Ramalingan. Today we'll be discussing health informatics. In particular, we'll be discussing how you use big data modeling machine learning for diagnosis of rare genetic uh, disorders and rare diseases. Our special guest today is Cassie Mitchell. She's an assistant professor at the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Emory University and Georgia Tech. She's the principal investigator of the Laboratory for Pathology Dynamics, which uses a combination of big data, machine learning, biostatistics and informatics-based techniques to, to identify complex disease etiology. Cass's research has predominantly targeted neuropathology, but her research applications in predictive medicine expand across all clinical specialties, including cancer, pediatrics, and cardiovascular medicine. So very welcome, Cassie. So we'll start with the first question, um, which is just tell us a little bit about yourself and your childhood and background. My childhood was on a small farm in Oklahoma, uh, far away from anything related to engineering or medicine. Um, but growing up in a rural life with animals and in um, a small area where you had to do a lot of problem solving, I think that really inspired my later life and being able to um, go on to do problem solving that can help a lot of people, including rural people, as well as people who live um, in the city. That sounds amazing. Um, before we dive into your research, I would like to highlight some of your accomplishments in the world of sports. I have a long list here. You have done track, basketball, have five tight world titles in equine events. You have played quad rugby, paracycling, track and field, placed fourth while undergoing chemotherapy. In Rio, you won silver and a bronze medal in, in discus and club throw in 2016. So tell us about your love for sports. Just one correction to that. My okay. cancer diagnosis was in 2016. So in London, I was not on chemo, but in 2016, I was. So when I won the medals in, in 2016, I, I was on chemo therapy. Um, but no, thank you for that. Um, it's my love for sports started actually in, in childhood, um, started with gymnastics. I got too tall for that. So, um, but even with the equestrians, I was riding horses before I could even walk. We have pictures uh, on me of me and these horses and you know, as a toddler. And so it's, it's funny. And I, after I was paralyzed at 18, I can say that I honestly missed riding horses more than I missed the walking. Like horses were such a big part of my life. Um, so I did that and then I had track and field in high school and I had a track scholarship to go to the university, but because I was paralyzed, I lost that track scholarship. Um, back, back then, you know, the schools were not required to uh, give you a scholarship if something happened after you had signed. And I was on an academic scholarship. And so that's how my athletic journey started. And then in university, um, I was approached about Paralympic sport two years in, and that was my introduction to Paralympic sport. And ever since then, I've been going in, in Paralympic sports. So I was kind of always into athletics and it just, how I did it changed after I was paralyzed. So just, you mentioned about the paralysis. Would you find, if it's okay, um, telling us what caused that, what was the diagnosis that led to that? 
Yes, so I have a rare neurological disease called neuromyelitis optica or NMO. So that affects the eyes and it affects the spinal cord. So I have the use of, of one eye and I um, have a, a special contact patch for the other. And then in terms of my paralysis, it's equivalent to a cervical level paralysis. So somebody that's broken their neck. And so that impaired my wrist, my hands, uh, part of my arms. And then of course I have no uh, sensation or movement in, you know, from the chest down. And so I can still propel a manual wheelchair, but I have impairments in my arms. And so that's why it's referred to as quadriplegia because you have impairments in all four limbs. Yeah. And that's amazing that you've done all these sports and you know, won all these awards um, in, you know, in spite of having the, the injury and the diagnosis that you had. So thank you for sharing, for sharing that with us. So can you tell us what motivated you into pursuing a doctorate in biomedical engineering? Well, I started out in chemical engineering as a reservoir engineer doing computational modeling. So obviously with my dexterity impairments, um, the technology on a computer was the best interface for my disability, whether it's voice software, other ways to code versus having to manipulate or do like physical modeling with, with my hands. Um, and so I loved the modeling aspects of, of big oil and, and chemical engineering, but I really wanted to do something in healthcare. And had I not been paralyzed at 18, I had planned on going to medical school. And so there's just that part of me that really wanted to get back into healthcare. And so I just took the computational skill set I had as a chemical engineer and took that to graduate school and then learned the, the healthcare piece. And then it's just been a very happy marriage between the two fields yeah uh, and and hoping to be able to make an impact with it yeah no that, that's amazing so can you tell us um about some of the diseases or, or projects you're working on at the moment so my main focus is with neurologic diseases um because that's where a lot of my training and specialty is but i i work with alzheimer's disease I work with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, or here in the States, we call that Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, those are where most of my funding has been, but I also have uh, funding and projects with cancer, uh, particularly leukemias, both adult and pediatric. We also have a little work with Parkinson's disease, which is another type of neurologic disease. I do a little bit with cardiovascular disease. Um, so we're, we're all all over the place. Essentially, wherever we can use our tools, our machine learning and artificial intelligence methods in order to improve healthcare, then that's a field we're willing to take on. But um, the neurologic diseases is where most of our time is spent. Yeah. And can you tell us a bit about how you go about recruiting patients or the, getting the data sets um, for these diseases? So I don't have an MD. And that's probably, if I had to go back and like say, what was my mistake in life? I wish I would have done my MD, PhD, but I <laughs> so I am reliant on other clinicians as collaborators to help with data. So there's a certain amount of de-identified data that you can get that, you know, without um, special permissions, but any kind of identifiable information, then of course the patient has to sign a consent form for that. Yeah. And that's done through special protocols. And so I have collaborators, a clinician for every project that I'm on 
that helps in assisting us with either current patient recruitment or access to retrospective data. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of validating data sets, because we're in the current climate now where, you know, questions are asked about algorithms and how they work. Um, how do you make sure that, you know, the data sets that that's provided to you is as inclusive and diverse as possible to give you the correct things? You mean like to make sure that the population yeah. matches the actual population? Yeah, that yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So that, you know, as a data scientist, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of say over the recruitment of specific groups, but I will say it's something that I look at immediately when the data set comes in, what is our gender ratio? What is our ethnic ratio? What, you know, attributes by comorbidities? Like all of that is important because if you don't have a data set that represents the actual population, then any results you get are null and void. And so if we don't have the correct breakdown, then that's something I go back to the clinician and say, hey, can we recruit more? of this group or that group or the other group. Um, but I think healthcare disparities is really an important area that needs to, I think we've seen that with the pandemic, but I also think it's an area where artificial intelligence can help because even when we don't have enough data from a certain group, there are certain types of sampling methods that we can do to kind of boost the signal from what we do have in order to try and get around it um, but there's nothing that replaces having actual data from, from the patients. But um, AI can do a lot to help overcome some of those disparities. So Cassie, I would like to quote you here. I didn't want to only do work that helps people 30 years from now. I also want to make people's lives better right now. Can you talk about what diseases you're currently working on, especially that are um, applicable to the patients in the near future? So the two that really come to mind in terms of helping people now and later are Alzheimer's and ALS. And the reason I say that is because there's no cure for either of those. And they, they end in back, right? I mean, they're, they're fatal um, after a certain period of time. And in the case of ALS, that time can be rather short. And so an example is, for, particularly for ALS, is while we are looking at really what I call radical discoveries to really change the way um, ALS is risk is identified and, and even going after a cure, um, what we're trying to do is also help the quality of life of patients now. And for ALS, we were able to use some machine learning algorithms in order to determine when a particular treatment was necessary. It used to be here in the US, insurance would not cover um, a respiratory treatment until the patients were so sick that it really didn't provide them much benefit. But using data analysis and machine learning, we were able to help change healthcare standards so that patients got this respiratory intervention covered sooner. So that's an example of while we weren't able to cure the disease, we were able to give patients another year or so of better quality of life. And I think that's important. So, um do you have any plans to collaborate with uh, uh, institutions like patients like me, where they collect information from the patients and um, to do uh, machine learning programs to under understand the disease better or um, to understand how uh, the data can be used for diagnostic purposes or even like clinical trials? 
Right. So there's we kind of section it off into three uh, fields that there's looking at disease causes and taking at data science and machine learning and trying to identify what causes a disease and like what is the risk of a patient getting that disease. Then the second one is the cures, right? What can we do that looks at treatment? Some of that's drug repurposing. So can I use machine learning algorithms to identify drugs that are on the market that might could be used for a new disease? We did that a lot during the pandemic for COVID. And then the third one is the the um, care piece. And that is, can we improve quality of life for patients? We may not be able to cure them right now, but can we improve their quality of life through either treatment regimens or um, in some cases it's physical activity or you know, what can the algorithm identify that we can change that improves their quality of life? Yeah, and that's truly amazing actually. Um, so you talked about you know, the predictive part and the cure part and quality of life part. In all of those different spectrums, um, what are the t- challenges associated with AI that you found um, and what is the right approach to, to try and counteract that? The biggest problem with AI, I see two problems. First is fear. People hear the word artificial intelligence and they're like, robots are taking over the world, you know, and <laughs> that's not what it is. And even a lot of physicians are concerned that AI is going to replace the doctor. And that is not the point of AI. AI is to be able to give us information to help enable humans better, not to replace humans. All right. So I think the AI is kind of a misnomer. So the fear of AI has kind of stopped it from being embraced by certain uh, both patients, clinicians, and and, and all over, you know, just the fear. So I think that's one piece. The second piece with AI is we have these fancy methods called neural networks and deep learning, and they are able to predict a lot of things. But the problem with them is they can give you the answer, but they can't tell you why, all right? And in healthcare, just having an answer and not knowing why is not good enough. We have to know why, because people's lives are on the line. It's one thing to predict the outcome of a basketball game. It's quite another to predict the outcome of a patient's life. And so in order to trust it, you have to be able to interpret it. So there's a big focus in AI right now on what's called interpretable AI. So that is, can I take these really fancy mathematics, which give me a right answer, and can I actually figure out why it's giving me that answer? And that's, I think, the biggest challenge for AI in healthcare. Yeah. And so that, that brings me to the next question in terms of commercialization of you know, this technology, making it readily available to patients. So, for example, you know, we're talking about rare diseases. For people who want to be able to predict, am I going to get Alzheimer's in the next few years? There are companies out there that are trying to put together this information, you know, where do you see your role in helping to make that research become translational and to become a viable product that will actually make a difference? Well, I think there are a lot of business opportunities for people who want to um, go into either like getting the data sets available or getting the software available. Uh, personally, I'm in academia, so I'm a big advocate of open source. And the reason why I like open source, which means freely available code, is so that it does give 
access to anyone who wants to look at it. And it's very transparent. You can see under the hood what the algorithm is and why it's doing what it's doing. And that also prevents um, you know, access barriers. If it's freely available, then anybody that has an internet connection can, can get to it. But I know that free is not a good business model. So for businesses <laughs> that want to get into this, I, I think the biggest problem is getting the data sets together and getting them cleaned. That's the work that nobody wants to do. It's like cleaning <laughs> your house, right? You don't want yeah. to clean your house, right? And so, but the data is one piece. And then getting the tools that have an interface where people who don't have a computer science background can use them, that's the second piece. So in terms of like business ventures, I think that's where there's a big market for this. Yeah. So you touched on something there, which is, you know, making it freely accessible. Obviously competing against that and, you know, feel free not, you know, if you, if you don't want to answer this question, but on the other side of this is the fact that, you know, data is privacy issues, and who owns the data set, you know, once it's been provided, is it the company that's cleaned it and made it readily available? Or is it the patients themselves who've, who've supplied their information? Um, what do you think about these, you know, these thoughts? <laughs> well, as a patient myself, I always agree that patient comes first. The patient has the right to choose what's done with their data. So, I think it starts with the patient. And if a patient wants their data included, then that's why we have consent forms to say, yes, I want to be a part of this effort, even if it means their data is completely de-identified so that you know their, their identity is not attached to it, it's still their data. And so I think that you know it starts with the patient. And then you know, the chain of command is the patient, then the doctor, the doctor, then the healthcare center, all right, and then from the healthcare center. Um, there's a data use agreements that happen in order to allow a company to come in and either purchase the data or use the data. And if they are like, how do they cite it? And, and, you know, there's, that's where these data use agreements. And so there's also a big need in the business world for lawyers that deal with how do we, you know, data is now a commodity. So how do we deal with the possession of data and, and making sure that we can make it it's really available and transparent, but also protecting, you know, patients' rights. Yeah, no, and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, like you said, you know, for most people as a patient, you want to contribute towards research, you want to contribute towards, um, you know, making, providing answers that we all have. And there was a technology I saw where, you know, they put, they basically put it in the hands of the patient where you can report your your daily outcomes in terms of how the disease affects you. And that data is then, you know, used by research to find out a bit more about the disease. And I thought that was truly exemplary actually. Um, so yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. I realize I'm going off a little bit off here, but I love to, I love this about you and would like to highlight this to our audience. Can you tell us why you have a lot of undergrad students in your lab? Well, initially, it started by a need. It was a problem-solving aspect. Um, I was at a point in my career where um, I was independent researcher, but I wasn't yet a tenure-track professor, and I wasn't allowed to have graduate students, but yet I had grants and things that I needed to get done. So I initially started by need that I, I recruited this large army of undergraduates who would work in teams. So it would be like four to five undergraduates would be equivalent to one graduate student or thereabouts based on workload. 
But after I became tenure track professor and I had access to graduate students, I loved working with undergraduates so much that I couldn't give it up. So I kept this very unorthodox model of having 30 to 40 undergraduates in my lab, in addition to, you know, somewhere between seven and 10 graduate students. And I just really liked that undergraduates were always excited and the kind of the naivety that they had. They were willing to ask questions because they were early enough in their development that they were willing to ask questions that maybe I wouldn't ask otherwise. So they kind of pushed me uh, in the sense like, okay, don't just accept the dogma. All right, go ahead and, and ask the obvious question because sometimes the obvious question um, isn't the answer we thought. And an example of that is my most highly cited paper is a paper that was started by undergraduates, first authored by undergraduates. And it looks at the underpinnings of amyloid beta, the most common protein in Alzheimer's disease. And they actually found that this amyloid beta protein maybe wasn't everything the Alzheimer's field thought. Maybe not all the answers to Alzheimer's relied on amyloid beta. And since other people in the field have also shown that's true, amyloid beta is important, but it's not the end all be all. And I remember when those undergraduates came to me and said, hey, we want to look at amyloid beta and cognitive function. I kind of laughed to myself. I'm like, well, of course amyloid beta is important. Why, why, why would we need to look at that, you know? And so, but they aggregated all this data and they did this really nice analysis. And it really showed me that sometimes you have to be willing to ask the obvious question and not just trust that what you've been told is what it is. Wow, that's a great story. Um, so they are more open-minded and, you know, because they are not very focused on the topic and they are willing to go outside of the uh, routine and explore they haven't been brainwashed yet <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no I, I i love that and that brings us to the next question in terms of what what you know what do you enjoy the most about being a research um academic like two things to that to notice i'm a data scientist so i always have to number all right so first and foremost is i get to work on diseases that may not make a lot of money if you're in business, but can make a real difference, all right? If you're going into business, ALS isn't gonna be the first disease you pick up because it's really hard and there's not that many of them. So you're not gonna make as much money compared to if you pick something like, I'm gonna treat high cholesterol. Well, a lot of people have high cholesterol, so you can make a lot of money. And I'm not saying high cholesterol is not important, but um, I really wanted to go after some patient populations that I felt like were underserved or underrepresented or just didn't have somebody looking out for them. And in academia, I have a little bit more flexibility to do that. I still have to you know, get grants and things, but um, it's not as much in terms of in business where everything is completely bottom dollar. The second aspect of academia is really getting to choose the people that I work with and having such a young lab. I have many high school interns. I have oh. the undergraduates and the grads. And to have that kind of imprint on so many young people's lives and really and see them get excited about research. And then now my students have gone on to become doctors and, yeah. and PhDs. Oh. And, you know, it's just been cool to see their journeys. And so those are the two big reasons why I like the academic research. Yeah, I, I can feel your passion coming across the screen. <laughs> so sort of in addition to that, you know, in terms of the research that you're doing, um, what do you think 
would be the sort of the disease to crack at the moment if you at have to pick moment, one yeah I would, at the moment i would say alzheimer's and that's because we have an aging population and more and more people are being affected by elder care we saw that during the pandemic number of people in nursing homes or, or other facilities that were hurt by COVID-19 and also, you know, the caretaking of them. And um, it's just the sheer number, plus there's just not much that can be done for them. So I think that one has both impact and volume. And for that reason, I would say, it, you know, artificial intelligence, I think that's probably number one on the list right now is Alzheimer's disease. If you do like a Google search, you'll see a lot of AI has been thrown at Alzheimer's for that reason. But I hate to say that Alzheimer's is more important than something else because every disease affects every patient in a unique way. So, you know, again, I, I don't want to put any disrespect on anybody's disease because, you know, they all are important to, to that patient. But I would say globally speaking, if I had to generalize Alzheimer's, I think, and I also think AI has the right attributes for multifactorial disease and different things that can really help that disease uh, in a way that maybe other tools cannot. And and do you think that with how COVID, you know, the, the pandemic has panned out in terms of, you know, the vaccine and technology to get drugs and things out there, do you think that will propel um, the technology and, and the, the solutions to these diseases that you're studying at the moment? I do. I think one, because people have become more reliant on technology during COVID, there's more of an openness to using AI and data science techniques and technology. So that goes back to the fear thing we talked about earlier. Um, I also think that the pandemic has kind of put highlights on certain aspects of healthcare that are broken, um, whether it be with elder care, whether it be with uh, racial disparities, you know, different things that aren't working. And so that's where new ideas and technology can help kind of bridge these gaps where we saw during a crisis that we had problems and had that kind of light not been shined with the pandemic, maybe we wouldn't see those still. But now that it has been shined, you can't unsee them. And so I'm hoping that the technology can be used to, to help make up some of these gaps. So obviously, you, know, you seem to love um, academic research and believe in open source code, but if you can make one change about how academic research is set up, what would that be? Well, I think a lot, you know, just like in business, the money is the bottom line. Often in academic research, the bottom line is impact factors and citations and you know, I'm a data scientist and I like my numbers, but I really think we need to rethink how we do collaboration and having a, just like we talk about open source, you know, data and software, being more open in our collabor collaborations and not seeing it as a race to who can publish first or who can get the highest impact factor. If we can work together more, that I mean, anything can happen. I mean, a year ago, everybody laughed at the idea that we would have a vaccine in less than a year because most vaccines take five to seven years to get. But yet everybody was like, we got to do this. And, and many biomedical companies went in together, all right, to do it. They all had their own, but they also worked together. 
And I think that's an example that whether it's in academia or business is sometimes you have to throw away the ego, throw away the statistic that you're going after and instead say, I have a bigger problem that I want to solve and you know, I'll do what's necessary to, to do it. And that means collaborating with people who might otherwise be seen as competition. Yeah, I agree. Um, so besides that, um, are there any other biggest challenges um, that you have faced in your career? Can well, you, you know, I, I also am from an underrepresented group. There aren't that many disabled professors and um, I don't wanna portray myself as a, a victim. But there are things that can be done to, to help um, improve uh, in our world uh, in terms of uh, making sure that there is diversity of, of thought and diversity of, of background. And um, I'm glad to see that there are, um, a light has been shined on that to try and, and help improve. Because when I think about diversity in, in academia, it's not just about statistics of who's there. People from different backgrounds have different ways of thinking about a problem. And that's what makes them valuable. It's not that I'm in a wheelchair. It's, it's that I have a unique life experience, right? And everybody has a unique life experience. And I think that having that diversity and being open to the idea that diversity improves problem solving, it's not just about padding statistics, right? Then that will really revolutionize things, right? You yeah. know, it's not about having so many wheelchair people on staff or so many people of a certain color on staff, or it's not about that. It's about really integrating in a way that helps us solve problems. Absolutely, I agree with you on that 100%. So, you know, what would you say are the future goals that you have academically in the sports arena? I, I, I watched a video of you going to Tokyo, hopefully soon. Well, I, I hope that uh, Tokyo happens. I am still training for what is now the 2021 uh, Games. So I'm, I, I have the World Championships. I have a silver medal uh, from 2016 but I don't have a Paralympic gold. They only come every four years and I've had two shots at it, all right? In 2011, uh, when I first was named to the team, which came in 2012, I mean, I barely started competing. And in 2016, I was diagnosed with cancer four months ahead of time and was undergoing treatment. So I feel pretty blessed to have even been able to go and compete and get a medal. I'm still on low dose chemotherapy, so that it is a factor in my training, but um, I have this sign behind me, which I know your viewers won't be able to see, but it says never, never, never give up. So that really is my ultimate goal in life is that I don't give up and I wanna keep fighting hard for others to be able to do their best. And that's my academic goals, but also my athletic goals as well, that you inspire a few other athletes along the way even some weekend warriors, all right? Even if you're not destined for the Olympic games to just to stay healthy and to stay fit. That's why I do it. More than winning medals is about staying healthy and staying fit. It's helped me with my battle with cancer. It's helped me stay, have a better quality of life uh, with my quadriplegia. So there's that. But from an academic standpoint, um, yeah, I, I just want to be able to have an impact on, on people that may not have someone else looking out for them. 
And I think artificial intelligence and machine learning is, is a good way to, to do that. I was open to collaborating. Whoever shares my vision and my goal of, of taking artificial intelligence, machine learning, and data science in order to help those who need it in healthcare and beyond. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I think you'll have a few people contacting you soon. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think uh, this is amazing and so inspiring because uh, we all get knocked down from time to time and the time it takes for us to pick ourselves off and, uh, you know, continue to do what we are doing varies from person to person. But you have faced like multiple challenges, but you always, you know, despite the challenges, you always found you know, light in the darkness. So what motivates you? What helps you to keep going? Well, I'll be honest about what motivates me. And I know it's different for every person, but for me, my faith has been very important, my faith in God. And I've been very blessed um, to be able to do the things that I've, I've been able to do. And, and my faith in God has been really important. I've also had a great support system with family, um, that has been through, you know, thick and thin with me and they've never held me back. They've always empowered me to go after my goals. But I tell people, you know, regardless of what background you, you come from or whether you're a person of faith or not, the one thing that we all have in common is choice, all right? So we choose how we respond to our circumstance, okay? And so you see that when bad things happen to people, a hurricane or whatever happens, there's people who are out helping and getting through. And then there's people who are maybe out um, stealing or, you know, doing, uh, taking advantage of the situation. And so we all have a choice on how we respond to our circumstance. And so I remind people that you do have a choice and to try to make the positive choice because in the end, it's easier to live with yourself and it's certainly easier in terms of helping the world absolutely you could i mean that, that's i just want to frame that right there um so one of the questions um i have is about um underrepresentation of women in stem field and this frustrate, frustrates me so much i mean this day and age uh that there are not enough women you know doing these courses and hence you know we don't see them in the workforce. So what do you think can be done to encourage women to get more into STEM field and also to help who are already there? No, I, I think that it's gotten a lot better in order to get women educated and into the field. So like when I went to school as an engineer, you know, in the early 2000s, like there was just a handful of women in my classes. Now at Georgia Tech, you know, it's about half women in the engineering. So I think we're getting the education piece there. But what's happening is the women fall out on the back end. So after they graduate, they're not sticking with it. So why is that? And I suspect that has to do with childcare, elder care, some of these other responsibilities that often fall on, on, on women. And um, so I think that in order to keep women in the workforce, we have to look at ways um, that we can help them with time management. I think time management piece, you know, there are just specific aspects uh, of, of women's life that, that requires some more time management, in my opinion. And, and so I think helping with that and making room for elder care and childcare and things like that would help keep women in the workforce. 
That is so How true. to do that exactly? I don't know. All <laughs> business people out there who work with streamlining processes and all, I don't know how to fix that one. I can't write an algorithm for that. But I, I do think we fix the education part mostly, at least here in the U.S. There's a lot of women in engineering fields, but you just it's just not sticking all the way through to the workforce. So maybe we're making progress, but we're just not quite there. Okay. So um, finally, do you have any advice for our business school students who are contemplating entry into healthcare artificial intelligence space? I think that with the business students, they, this is a wonderful opportunity because, you know, data scientists and machine learning and AI, we're good with technology, but we're terrible when it comes to financial ventures and kind of even sometimes seeing the need and purpose. And business people have a very special skill set that complements artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so pairing up with, a, say, a clinician, an AI ML person, and a business person, that's like a really hot team that is going to do some, you know, really good type of damage in terms of uh, coming up with products that um, help people. And, you know, it's, it's that diversity of thought again, right? Business, healthcare, AI, ML. And I just think that you have to be willing to plug yourself in as a business person and don't be intimidated by the ML speak or the healthcare speak. The business person has a very important role. So you just have to be willing to kind of step out in that and say, hey, I want to fill this gap. And then pitch your idea or come to a person and offer to collaborate. I mean, that's where these things start is that somebody, you know, has a courage to say, hey, I would like to help with this. This is, this is my skill set. And then, you know, you make that match and, and you work with it. But I think in terms of business, there's a lot of opportunities there. It's just a matter of um, getting yourself connected. Yeah. And that is so, so, so true. Thank you so much. Um, it's been an exceptional episode. Um, you're exemplary in, you know, all the fields that you're working in, you know, having been a patient yourself, you know, and being a scientist and working in the sort of data AI space and, you know, working in the space of taking healthcare forward. So thank you so much for sharing all your insights. I think our listeners will definitely love listening to you and will be truly inspired by your courage and everything that you've achieved so thank you so much thank you for having me it's it's been a pleasure and i wish the best to all of your listeners and to you thank you thank you